Good morning, loves. My name is Nelson. I'm one of the pastors here at Artisan Church. And uh, as we prepare to open the scriptures this morning in the hope of receiving whatever wisdom, grace, and truth they may have to offer us here and now, I want to invite us to take a deep breath. In. Hold. And out. Let's do that a couple more times. Did anyone else experience any emotions this week? Um, any at all. <laughs> I, uh, I felt some emotions. I felt all of them. Or felt like all of them. See, there was this election on Tuesday. I don't know if anyone heard about it. It's kind of a big deal. Um, I spent most of the day trying to read and prepare and write the words I'm sharing with you right now. And while at the same time trying to avoid the urge to doom scroll on Twitter. <laughs> Uh, and it's not been easy. I've felt distracted and nervous. I've felt anxious and worried. I've felt fearful. I have felt overwhelmed at the task of having to offer something to you all that would sound and feel like good news without being tone deaf and a time where there's just a lot going on. And one thought that was going through my head, which never really did uh, pre-COVID was, Will this sermon that gets recorded on Thursday evening still make sense on Sunday morning? Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. um, many years spent watching and rewatching the West Wing uh, taught me that political candidates usually write two speeches, one if they win and another if they lose. And so in my struggle to hold on to hope to something bigger, I wondered whether I'd need to do the same thing. One sermon if this candidate wins, one sermon if that one does. And what kind of sermon if should I write if we don't even know the outcome by then? which I don't even know if we will know if it would come by then. So lots of feelings. And I went over to my social media feed on Tuesday, not to scroll aimlessly, but to seek out some community, uh, to find some comfort in the knowledge that I'm not alone and to find some help and language to pray. One of my favorite people to follow is a pastor and author named Nadia Bolz Weber. If you've heard of this woman, you know what a gift she is to the planet. And she had this great idea on election day to invite a guest to join her, a different guest at the top of each hour from 11 a.m. to 11 p.m. She held vigil for 12 hours with guests on Instagram Live. And she just had a short conversation to offer and had the guest offer a prayer, a blessing, a poem, a, a short conversation. And she called it, keeping it together on election day, colon, a few minutes of sanity each hour. <laughs> and Nadia was joined by everyone from Bishop Michael Curry to Reverend Gail Song to Brene Brown to Padre Gotuma. And she said it was mostly a selfish move because she said like, I need help to keep it together. So this is why I'm doing this. But of course it was also a blessing to anyone who took part. I knew I needed help to keep it together. So I tuned in live about seven times, not all 12 hours, but seven times. And it was helpful. It was grounding, it was joyful at times, uh, it was tearful at times, it was validating, it turned my attitudes and my attention toward God. Well, the next morning brought more feelings. The nervousness was still with me, the worry, the sadness, the fear, and then Kate Bowler, who had been one of Nadia's guests, shared something on her Instagram, which she called a blessing for when you are afraid. And before she offered it, she said this, there's something about the way in our positive thinking culture that we pathologize fear. 
We say there's something inherently wrong with it, that the best mind is a calm mind. And like sometimes the most honest mind is the one that knows when to be afraid. And that fear is part of being honest. So if that's you, she said, don't be angry with yourself for knowing what is true. It is one of the great lies of our culture that we're not allowed to feel anything but joy. Choose joy. Well, I, as a his history of positive thinking expert, can tell you, sometimes we just need to find the beauty in the truth inside of what is. And right now, what is, is that space between where we don't yet know, where we're stuck in uncertainty, and uncertainty is horrible. So a blessing for that. And I want to share it with you as well, and for any of us who are in an in-between, uncertain place right now, whether it's because of the election, or COVID, or November, as a gateway into our sermon moment this morning. So a blessing for when you are afraid. God, I feel afraid. My heart is melting like wax. God, save me and quiet my fears. Hold me when I feel there is no place to stand. God, have mercy. Christ, have mercy. Spirit, have mercy. Blessed are we who admit, God, I'm afraid. Blessed are we who confess, I don't know how to rest. You know our anxious minds. You fill our restless hearts. You promise us your presence, the quiet of your love. Come away with me and I will give you rest. God have mercy. Christ have mercy. Spirit have mercy. Breathe, settle on this truth. Our God is closer than air. Amen. What a gift. Let's hear our text for today. I'm reading from 1 John, verses 7 to 21. 1 John 4, 7 to 21. I knew there was a number missing in there. Um, Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. This is how we know we live in him and he in us. He has given us of his spirit and we have seen and testify that the father has sent his son to be the savior of the world. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the son of God, God lives in them and they in God. And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. This is how love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. In this world, we are like Jesus. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. 
We love because he first loved us. Whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. And he has given us this command. Anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. This is God's word. So, yeah, and again, thank you for the response. Um, I didn't leave space for that. Another reason I wanted to share a blessing for when you're afraid is that part of our text this morning, on the surface anyway, seems to tell a different story about fear. There is no fear in love. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. And the most frequent directive in the Bible is do not be afraid, which can sound like an indictment against feeling fear. We're going to come back to this in due course, but for now, let me just say that when we consider the whole testimony of Scripture, whatever else don't be afraid means, it cannot mean do not ever feel the emotion of fear. It cannot mean whatever it takes, cut yourself off from experiencing the most natural human response to a terrifying event. (laughs) Scripture is full of people being their open, honest, vulnerable, sometimes afraid selves before God. Just read the Psalms. Again, more to come on this, but I wanted to say at least that much at the outset. Are you with me? Okay, so we've been repeating a few key phrases since the beginning of the series, and I don't know if anyone remembers what they are. I'll just say them to avoid the awkward (laughs) silence thing, but God is love. We see this most clearly in Jesus, and in Christ we become God's love. And these three items, these three assertions or themes, essentially summarize the book as a whole, and they're basically going to form my outline this morning, but I'm going to add a modifier to each one because I believe that's what's happening in our text. So first big theme, God is love and the source of love and life. And on your screen, you'll see a whole bunch of verses where that theme is pulled out. I'll repeat that. God is love and the source of love and life. Remember last week, we talked about uh, John's writing style. There's this ancient writing technique called amplification. It's this nonlinear circling back where the author cycles back to key ideas for emphasis. So there's lots of repetition, hyperbole, stark contrasts, and clearly that's what's going on here. Verse 7, love comes from God. Verse 8, God is love. 9, this is how God showed his love. 13, God has given us of his spirit. The message says he's given us life from his life, from his very own spirit. Verse 16, God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. 19, we love because he first loved us. God is love and the source of love and life. Some form of the word love appears 35 times in our text today. I know this because I counted them and it's a bit less complicated than electoral math and to say nothing of counting votes. John seems to think then that it's pretty crucial to remind these early Christ followers who remember are neck deep in confusion and conflict and uncertainty. They're wondering what matters most. And John is really emphatic 35 times over that that we get love and God sorted out. And it seems that the way we do that is to keep them together. Where does love emerge from? How do we know what we know about love? Love comes from God, says John. God is love, the source of love, the basis of love, the origin 
of love, the fount, the spring, the cradle, the womb, the starting place, the home of love is God. God is love. Bruxy Cavey said, I believe these are the three most beautiful words strung together in the English language. Now, whether you agree with him or not, there's no disputing that God is love is a bold claim. One that's in the Bible, in our texts, twice, explicitly, and 33 more other times, implicitly. Verses 8 and 16. Now, someone might say, um, a lot of things are in the Bible, but they're not necessarily prescriptive truth, and of course you'd be bang on. Um, The topography of scripture contains peaks and valleys, mountains and plains. As one writer put it, the Bible is not flat terrain. The honest reader readily admits that the Levitical prohibition against eating shellfish does not reach the same heights as the lofty Christology of Colossians. Soaring above everything else the Bible has to say about God are these twin peaks found in John's first letter. God is love. God is love. This is a picture of Long's Peak and Mount Meeker, two peaks that tower above the rest of the front range of the Rocky Mountains in Colorado. The Arapaho Indians called them Nesotias, meaning two guides. Because they stand so much taller than the rest, they help mountaineers orient themselves while traveling through that region. In the same way, I want to suggest that the two peaks of 1 John 4, verse 8 and 16 are absolutely essential navigational tools as we work our way through the Bible. Brian Zahn put it this way, the view from the base of the mountain or even halfway up is simply not the same as from the summit. If we can follow John's lead to the summit of the holy mountain of scriptural revelation, we will see the whole Bible in a new light. Zahn says, for example, we'll start to see that God is not wrath. Though we may rightly understand and describe the consequences of divine consent to our own self-destructive will as the wrath of God, the truth remains God is not wrath, God is love. That God is not a bloodthirsty deity requiring ritual killing. Though this may have been the only way we could understand God, Four millennia ago, on the lower flanks of the holy mountain, the truth remains, God is not bloodthirsty. God is love. God is not violence, despite the fact that religion has a long history of sacralizing violence by projecting it on God, the truth remains that God is love. My friend Brad Jersak put it this way, God is love. The Apostle John will not equivocate on that. God is love plus nothing. Not God is love, but he's also the moment you fill in a blank and add an attribute to God that is not directly founded on and in his love, you've committed a grievous heresy. I'm saying that as a spiritual son of a retired archbishop in the East Orthodox Church, not as some liberal who's got sentimental problems. The ancient faith said this, God is love, period. And any other attribute 
whether it's holiness or justice or righteousness or wrath, if you assign that to God in a way that is not only a facet of the diamond of love, you're entering a realm of a monstrous blasphemy. So said St. John of Cassian. The essence of God, the DNA of God is love full stop, which means that every expression, everything God does is love because everything that God is, is love. Which brings us to our second theme. First one, God is love, the source of life and love. Second one, we see this love most clearly in Jesus and it's cross-shaped. John again touches on this in a bunch of places, but let me just read verses nine to 11 once more for us. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Here's my paraphrase of verse 11. Dear friends, since God so loved us in this cross-shaped, co-suffering, self-sacrificial way, we also ought to love one another in a cross-shaped, co-suffering, self-sacrificial way. I've been reading a book by the late James Cone called The Cross and the Lynching Tree, and it's been a journey. In it, he writes uh, about the theological vision of Dr. Martin Luther King, for whose faith the cross stood at the very center. And because that was so, Dr. King could even love the people who were trying to kill him. Cone writes, as King saw it, the most powerful religious authority for black Christians was Jesus Christ. And Jesus' teachings on love and nonviolence became his primary focus. Jesus still cries out in words that echo across the centuries, said King. Love your enemies, bless them that curse you, pray for them that despitefully use you. This is what we must live by. And this was not a theological framework Dr. King landed on from studying in seminary. He lived it. King understood what John wants us also to understand, that God has no interest in merely teaching us about love. God wants to show us, and indeed has shown us, what the embodiment of love looks like. For Dr. King, the cross represented the depth of God's love for suffering humanity and an answer to the deadly cycle of violence and hatred. For King, nonviolence was more than a political strategy for blacks to fight white supremacy. It was a way of life defined by love for others, the only way to heal broken humanity. May his legacy continue to inspire us and awaken our imaginations and give us courage to live in the way of Christ's love. We need deep courage to do this because the way of love is not an easy road. Last theme. In and through Christ, we become God's love, an embodied love that overcomes fear and cannot coexist with hate. Bit of a run-on sentence, I grant you. It's a, a few extra modifiers, but there we are. Um, the idea of becoming God's love in the world kind of sounds wonderful, right? If we kind of hear it romantically, it does to me, but here's the thing, love isn't just an idea. We've been talking about this. It's a way of being. So to actually live in the way of love is hard. To be a mother, to be a truly good friend, to be a marriage partner, 
requires toughness, resilience, determination. That's simply the nature of love. One writer put it like this, you can't learn to love people without being around actual people, including people who infuriate, exasperate, annoy, offend, frustrate, encroach upon, resist, reject, and hurt you, thus tempting you not to love them. You can't learn the patience that love requires without experiencing delay and disappointment. You can't learn the kindness that love requires without rendering yourself vulnerable to unkindness. You can't learn the generosity that love requires outside the presence of heartbreaking and unquenchable need. You can't learn the peaceableness that love requires without being enmeshed in seemingly unresolvable conflict. You can't learn the humility that love requires without moments of acute humiliation. You can't learn the determination that love requires without opposition and frustration. You can't learn the endurance that love requires without experiencing unrelenting seduction to give up. The same author who wrote that, Brian McLaren, continues with this. The way of love, then, is the way of annoyance, frustration, disappointment, unkindness, need, conflict, humiliation, opposition, and exhaustion. No one would choose it if love weren't, in the end, its own reward. This difficult way, this way of love and suffering, this way of Christ, is unavoidably the way of the cross. Let's briefly come back to this question of fear and what scripture seems to say about it. Very brief, briefly, the, the context of 1 John 4.18 is important. And in that verse, we're explicitly told what sort of fear the apostle has in mind. It says there, perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. He's talking about the fear of death, of judgment, the fear of God that's not the reverential kind, but the cowering kind. The fear that results when we don't remember what Dr. King gave his life remembering, that the cross of Jesus is the supreme revelation of God's love. That is the kind of fear that perfect love, the God who is love, drives out. So again, the apostle is not saying, don't ever feel afraid because if you do, you're obviously not fully formed in love. Instead, he's taking us on a hike back up the Twin Peaks, reminding us that God is love plus nothing. And because that's true, and because Jesus came not to condemn the world, but to save the world through him, we do not need to fear God. What if every time we came to the often repeated phrase, do not be afraid, uh, and it happens a lot during Advent, get ready for it. <laughs> what if we were to read it not as a command, but an invitation? What if we were to hear in these words, do not be afraid, or beneath or around these words, God wooing and beckoning and pleading with us saying, do not be afraid of me. The closing verses circle back to a theme John's touched on before, namely this, that you can't say you love God and hate people at the same time. It just can't happen. 
that the love we become in and through Christ cannot coexist with hatred. These two postures or ways of being in the world are unreconcilable. Again, easy to say, maybe even to some degree to understand. Yeah, that kind of makes sense. Really hard to live out. So as we prepare to join the Lord Jesus at his table, I want to end kind of where we began, at least in the same spirit, with another blessing. And this time I invite you, first of all, if you're with anyone as you're watching this, look them in the eye briefly, just offer a smile. And if they're in your bubble, I don't know if that's going to work in this room, but wherever you are, um, place a hand on their shoulder, hold their hand, whatever makes sense. If you're alone, picture the people in your world, the ones you love, the ones you miss dearly uh, right now, maybe the ones that find it, you find it difficult to love. And that's for all of us to picture, whether we're alone or not. So in your mind, be with the, the people that are kind of on your radar. Take another breath and let me offer a prayer of blessing. See Christ in one another. This is the image of God. And every one of you were created in the image of the prototype named Jesus Christ. And he is in every one of you. Father, we bless you. We thank you for the gift of your Son, the gift of your Holy Spirit, and that you, blessed Trinity, dwell in us. Abide in us as your beloved children. Dear friends, let us love one another. In the name of Christ. <laughs>